Thanks again for being at Grace. We're glad you're, you're with us. Before we jump back into Galatians, we're in a series called Off the Chain, all about Galatians going through chapter by chapter. Just want to make one announcement, and that is, uh, since our church has been in existence, we've been a part of a, a, a group of churches, a fellowship of churches that we connect with. There's about 250 churches. We're completely autonomous. We're completely independent, but we choose to hang out with them, uh, mainly to cooperate with some of our missions and also Grace College in Wino Lake, Indiana. And this year, that uh, fellowship, that conference has decided to do their national conference here, right here at Grace Community Church in Fremont, which is really cool because uh, we're kind of a small town and, and they're doing that. They usually do this at destination type places. So we're excited about that. That is the week of July 23rd. The conference is on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, but there's things happening on Monday and Friday. But just a, a neat uh, opportunity for us to host um, our, our fellowship, and so we're excited about that, which will also be rebranded, I think, at this conference, and just some cool stuff happening. We'd like for you to pray for that, that things would go well, and I know Forrest is signing up some volunteers if they're available during the week, morning or evening, uh, to help out with some things. So cool opportunity. I think we're the fifth largest church in our fellowship, and I think maybe the first largest as far as uh, membership is concerned. So just a cool thing. God's really blessed us, and we're excited to host them. Also today, Bloomville is joining us by live stream this morning. We don't count them as, as, a, as a, we don't use the term campus, but we call it Bloomville as a video venue for our church. They've been doing it on Saturday night, and today we get to welcome them right here on Sunday morning, and we're glad Bloomville's with us as well. We're going to dive into our series it's called Off the Chain, and it's about Galatians, and it's all about freedom. How many of you did something to celebrate the 4th of July this last week? All right, yeah, we do that because we enjoy celebrating freedom, and freedom is a powerful theme in our culture today. As a matter of fact, I think some of the greatest movies and the greatest stories have a freedom twist to it. You know, whether it's The Patriot or even Gladiator with the freedom from tyranny or, or Mel Gibson and, and uh, Braveheart, right? I mean, the end, toward the end of the movie, he's being tortured and they've got him on the rack and they're stretching him. And they're trying to get him to recant and they're leaning in to hear him say it. And then he yells out, freedom. yeah, but he doesn't do it like that. He goes, freedom, you know, it's really cool. And, you know, I mean, it resounds with us, freedom. We love the theme of freedom. But in our culture today, it's almost like when people, when you talk to people about Christianity or following Jesus, they see Christianity as a restraint, a restraining factor on their freedom. And that's because our culture today has come to define freedom a certain way. And I, I think it's a wrong definition. People would say freedom is being able to do whatever you want. Of course, that doesn't really work out for other people. So then it's changed to freedom is to do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt anybody. So we have this freedom is all about doing whatever we want as long as we don't hurt anybody. But people recognize if there is a God, then that can't be the right definition of freedom because then it would be, well, we can do whatever we want, but 
we probably ought to listen to what God has to say. So it kind of doesn't work. And because people are pretty much reluctant to say there is no God, because of the evidence all around us for God, what they do is they reject God's word. And, and then it'll go this way. Well, I don't know if there's a God or not, but what I do know is that we can't know what God tells us to do. So because of that, I can say there might be a God, but I can still have complete freedom because we can't be sure what God's telling us. That is the wrong definition of freedom. And as a matter of fact, it's ironic because the Bible is filled with freedom language, freedom theme. The whole book of Galatians, we're studying it chapter by chapter, and it's all about freedom, 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 freedom. We call the series Off the Chain. What's that all about? Freedom. It's all about freedom. And so as we look at it, and, and when people respond that way, one thing you could do is you could challenge them on their notion of freedom, say, well, your definition of freedom is wrong. And really, there's three reasons that that definition that, that our culture has for freedom is actually wrong. First of all, tr if, if that's true freedom and, and we want to be free, if true freedom is do whatever you want, then we can never challenge or correct anyone without messing up their freedom, unless they agreed with us that what they were doing was actually hurting someone. The problem with that is we use our freedom to hurt people all the time, and we don't want to admit it. So the only way you can correct somebody or challenge somebody is that if they see they're hurting somebody. That's one reason. The second reason is true freedom should be compatible with the human heart. But our, our hearts are divided. We, our hearts follow competing things. For example, um, we want to eat whatever, you know, for me, just about anything, but I also want to be healthy. I, I, last night, Pam and I, we were in Toledo, and so we had kind of a date, and we went to Texas Roadhouse, and I was remembering, and, and they have these hot rolls with this cinnamon butter. I mean, it's delicious. So they bring us four... I eat three, Pam eats one. They bring us another four, I eat three, Pam eats one. And then I cut myself off. I remember one time I was traveling with our staff and, and we stopped at a Texas Roadhouse. We, we were on the road, stopped at the Texas Roadhouse and they started bringing us this hot, these hot rolls and I'm eating them, waiting for our meal. I was on number seven or eight and one of the staff guys whips out the smartphone and starts looking up the calorie count on these things that I'm eating. Like I say, I'm on number seven or eight. And, they and then they start doing math, and then they tell me in front of the whole table, they say, Kevin, basically, you've already ingested all the calories you should ingest for the next two or three days. <laughs> I hadn't even got my meal yet. You know, so we have these competing desires in our heart. Hey, I, I want to eat hot rolls and chocolate chip cookies and and." Cookie dough blizzards. I had one of those this weekend too. You know, I want to do all that, but I want to be healthy. I want to live a long life. Competing desires. True freedom they should be compatible with our heart. And then the third reason is true freedom must be compatible with love. Even secular thinkers realize 
that you don't have true freedom when you're in love. You can't do whatever you want when you love someone. Love limits freedom. And so they'll say, well, I had complete freedom in my life, except for when I was in love with this person, because then I want to do. And, and some people push back on that and say, well, no, no, when, when I love somebody, I'm going to find a person who loves me the way I am, and they don't want to change anything about me, and no matter what I do, they love it. And, and, and then I will never have to make a sacrifice for them because they'll want the same thing I want, and it's going to be great. You will never find that person, number one. And number two, if you did, you wouldn't love them because love is sacrifice. Love is a do. So this is what Paul said. True free. We can challenge people. Paul's telling us here is what true freedom is. And we see it all. He's been saying it all through this book. Now we're on chapter 5. We're going to watch this all coming together. Here's what he's saying. He's talking about the freedom found in Christ. But here's what he's going to tell us today. In chapter 5, he's going to tell us what freedom is, what is freedom, and how do you live it? What is it? How do you live it? And he starts, he's telling us, and he's been telling us, freedom, true freedom, real freedom is only in the gospel. Real freedom is only found in the gospel. Now, the context, again, just a reminder for anybody that might be new, haven't been with us, he's writing these churches in this area, Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey. He's already been there. They're pagans. He came. He presented the gospel. And the gospel is this message that's applicable to us today. That's basically saying, hey, God, there is a creator God who's existed eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, one God in three persons, and he created the universe, and he loves us. And to top it all off, although God needed nothing, he created mankind, human beings, and he created us with the capability of having a relationship with God. But because God wanted that relationship, he wanted it based on truth, and so he revealed his moral law to us, what is right and wrong. And specifically for the Galatians, they recognized God did that in the Old Testament. But what the law did for us is we start realizing as we look at God's law that he revealed to us, that this is, we're messed up because we cannot keep God's law. We cannot keep the Ten Commandments, especially the higher standard Jesus talked about. We can't do it. And so then we start realizing that's bad news, but more bad news, because God is just, and he, this, ultimately the universe we live in is just, wrongdoing or sin has to be punished. And the punishment that he's truthfully told us about is the punishment, the right and just, correct punishment for all of our sins as individuals is separation from God forever. So that's bad news. But the gospel, which actually means good news, and in the Bible it's the specific good news, is this. That God sent his one and only son Jesus to come to live on earth. He lived a perfect life. He took humanity, clothed himself in flesh, lived a perfect life. But ultimately he came to voluntarily allow himself to be tortured to death in payment for our sin. Because sin has to be paid for in a just universe. So he pays for our sins. And then he tells us we can be forgiven and we can be freed from the penalty of sin 
If we respond in faith, and this is the key, it's by faith. The only way we get Christ's death accredited to our account, the only way that our sins get paid for on Calvary is when we respond to him in faith. And that means we're, we believe Jesus is the Son of God and we trust that what he did on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago for us, but a few years ago for the Galatians, was enough to pay for all of our sins, past, present, and future. That's the gospel. So he's writing them. He's saying, you used to be pagans. Now you're Christians. But hey, something's going wrong here. And he's correcting them because they're following these false teachers. The whole point of the gospel is there's nothing we can do to earn acceptance with God. This is key because I talk to people all the time. It's, it's a little bit different when you talk to people and they find out you're a pastor and, and they don't really go to church or maybe they do. But what's weird is when people find out you're a pastor and you're just in conversation with them, one of the first things, if, and you don't know them, but, you, but somebody's pointed it out or, or maybe you've said it or whatever, they find out you're a pastor. One of the very first things they'll tell you is something good that they've done. By the way, you know, last week I stopped by and helped that widow lady, you know, with her trash. You know, and you're thinking, what does that have to do with what we're talking about? Nothing. It's, it's just odd that way. And people, sometimes I'll interact with people about Christianity and God, and they'll basically say this, hey, I live by the golden rule. I, I treat people the way I want to be treated. You know, and I'm thinking, sometimes I just tell them, it depends on how the conversation's going, you do not live by the golden rule. You think you do, but the golden rule is to love everybody else as much as you love yourself. All the time, everybody. Nobody does that. You do not live by the golden rule. And because of that, you are not okay with God. If you could, you would be, but you can't. So you're not, and nobody can. Actually, it's the law, things like the golden rule that leads you to a savior because we realize we cannot keep the law. We need help. That points us to a savior, leads us to a savior, leads us to Jesus. So the Galatians have been saved from their paganism, their sin, all their rebellion against God the same way we do today by faith in Jesus and what he did. And when it comes to salvation, being right with God, it doesn't matter what you do. It's really all about grace. It's a, it's a total gift. We don't help God out, not even by doing religious things. That doesn't earn us any salvation. It doesn't erase one sin when we do good things or even do religious things. That does not erase one single sin from our account. And it's weird when you start talking like this, people will say, Kevin, how do you expect that if you're up there teaching people that no matter how they live through faith or right with God, how are people ever going to live a better life? You can't tell them that it doesn't matter what they do and they live a better life. That's going to just lead to people doing wrong things and loose living and it's going to be trouble. But actually, Paul's saying that's wrong thinking because he's saying that, that's what the false teachers did. You see, after Paul left, after they became believers, some false teachers from Jerusalem came up to this area and started talking to people in these churches. And they said, oh, 
you have faith in Christ. You're, you're trusting in Jesus. That's great. Now, what you need to do is obey the law, and then you'll be saved. You'll be right with God. But see, that's perverted the gospel, what, what Paul came to say, which is have faith in Jesus, and then you'll be saved. Plus nothing. Faith in Jesus plus nothing. Then you'll be saved. And then after you're saved, you'll want to follow God. You'll want to obey. So they come up. They tell the Galatians, hey, you got to follow the law. And then part of that law was for males to be circumcised. And and these guys are still kind of falling for this, and they're actually going to do it. Let's pick it up in chapter 5, verse 1. Here's how it goes. Paul says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Do you hear that language? Severed from Christ, fallen from grace. Christ will be of no benefit to you. He's saying if you start doing even religious good things because you think in doing them that somehow you merit God's favor or somehow that makes you acceptable to God, you've undone the gospel. You've undone the most important message in the universe. You've messed it up, is what he's saying. And then he goes on to say that he's teaching us that the most important thing about obedience, it's not a way for us to be right with God. Obedience is really the most important thing about obedience is the reason that we obey. What's your reason for obeying? You see, if you stand on the freedom of the gospel, that means you're saved completely by grace. That means total gift. That's, that's all it is. It's a gift. And whether you're circumcised, which is a little tiny surgical operation for you know, men or babies from the Old Testament, whether you're circumcised, it doesn't matter. Whether you're uncircumcised, that means nothing. It has no value either way. Your acceptance by God is only through a gift, grace. That's all it is. Both have no value. And you start thinking that through and you realize when a real Christian does good, they don't think, well, God loves me now because I've done this. When a real Christian does good, they think, I've done this because God loves me. It's the reason for obedience. But it's it's part of our human nature that we keep messing this message up because we keep thinking we should have some way to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. I mean, we should have a way to do this. And then we think this when we mess up. Let's say we're all sitting here and let's say Friday night or or Saturday, let's say you just did something that you woke up this morning and you're just like, oh, I can't believe I did that as as a believer. I mean, wow, I'm really disappointed in myself. I can't believe I did that. 
And then when you're feeling that way, sometimes you start talking to yourself, or you're, it's like your, your mind's voice starts scolding you. I don't know if this happens to you, but it, it's something like this. You're telling, you're telling yourself something like this. I can't believe you think you're a Christian. Can't believe you're a Christian and you did that. And then maybe you'll think something like, why would God ever listen to you? Why would, what, would he ever even want to be around you? Here's what Paul's saying, very practical. Paul's pointing out to us that whatever, let's say that whatever you did Friday or Saturday, let's say that you did not do that. You didn't fail. You didn't mess up. You didn't sin in whatever situation that was. Paul's saying, whether you did or didn't, even if you did great all weekend, you are no more fit for the kingdom than if you would have done bad. You see, because our acceptance by God is not based on our performance. It's based on the performance of Jesus. It's based on him. I know this sounds kind of weird. You know, you say, Whoa, this sound, where are you going with this? Yeah, but th this is what Paul's saying. This is how these people, they're, they're thinking through this. This is why it's so easy to get messed up here. Because somebody will say, well, well, Kevin, you sound like it doesn't even matter if we obey or not. It matters. But the reason you obey is everything. You do not obey God and do good things thinking somehow this earns you merit or favor from God. It does not. And Paul's saying here, if you obey the law for reasons that you're about to obey the law for, which is to be accepted by God, you are no better off than when you were a pagan. That's what he's saying. Why? Because, we talked about this a little bit, because when they were pagans, they were just following their desires. Whatever they desired, whether it was sex, money, power, success, whatever, they followed their desires. And then they would worship the God, because there were a plethora of gods, they would worship the God that was associated with their desire. And then they would do whatever the, the people said, the priests or the religion said, to appease that God in order for them to get what they desire. But the problem is, what they desired, they were finite things that cannot stand in the place of a holy God. So if you're living for anything finite, whether it's beauty or power, success, sex, even family, your job, if you're living for anything like that, you'll be burdened and enslaved. Why? Circumstances. Circumstances will kill you. Circumstances will wipe you out when you're trying to follow your desires. If circumstances threaten what you're living for, you live in fear. If circumstances block what you're living for, you'll be filled with anger. If you fail to achieve what you're living through, through your own stupidity or whatever, you'll be despondent, hopeless, maybe suicidal. If, if, you're, if you don't measure up to what you're living for in your own mind, you'll be burdened with guilt, anxiety, bitterness. Paul's saying, do not go back to working for your salvation, to working to be right with God. Even 
even if it's not paganism and it's good stuff that's in the moral law, even if you're doing good stuff, don't go back to that type of thinking. Because when you obey the law of God, even the law of God, when you obey that for wrong reasons, you actually end up in the same fearful lifestyle because it's based then on performance and we are so bad, inconsistent in our hearts on doing the law. He's saying you'll be just as enslaved because of moral success. If that makes you feel like because you have moral success, oh, I didn't do that, now God loves me. That will burden and enslave you. Because what, what about when you mess up? What are you thinking then? God has already loved you through Jesus, and he accepts you through faith, no matter what. Verse 5 says, For we, through the Spirit, by faith, and that's key, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. He's saying, hey, salvation, it's come to us it's through the Spirit. He, basically, he's telling us that the day that we understand that we are morally flawed and we need outside help, there's nothing we can do to save ourselves, and we place our trust in Jesus, who he is, Son of God, and what he did, died on the cross for us, and that that was enough to pay for our sins, past, present, and future, all our sins. He goes, once you do that, that's what, that's what salvation really is. That's how we're accepted by God. When we do that, we receive the Spirit. But all that happens by faith. Faith is what's key. Now, the problem is this verse says, for we through the Spirit, for the hope of righteousness. I've mentioned this in years past repeatedly, but there's a problem when we translate hope, the, word, the Greek word, into English. It just doesn't, we do not have a word that lines up with this word. So it's a continuing problem. There's really no better word, but, it, but you need a whole string of words to translate it, and people don't want to do that. And here's what I'm saying. In the Greek word, which I think is ipis, hope means a certain expectation of a future event. Hope is just something that you know is going to happen. It just hasn't happened yet, but you know it will happen. Every time you read the word hope, in the New Testament. It really is talking about something that has yet to happen in the future, but you are rock solid certain that it will happen. You just may not know when it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. But when we translate it into English and use the English word hope, in English, we hear the word hope and we don't hear certainty. We hear uncertainty. Like, I hope it rains tomorrow, or I hope it doesn't rain. That's saying we don't know if it will or it won't, but we hope one way or the other. That is not how the New Testament word in the Greek should be translated. It's just that we don't have anything better as a single word. So you just have to know that. So what he's saying, hey, through, through faith, God has clothed us, not only taken our sins, but he, he's clothed us. He's justified us with Christ's righteousness. Instead of our sin, he sees the righteousness of Christ through our faith in him. And it's a certain thing. It's a done deal. Now, freedom is in the gospel, 
because God has closed, clothed us with this righteousness. It's done. It's a gift. But also, freedom is in truth. Look at verse 6. It says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. As Christians, we do good things. I mean, as Christians, if we have faith, it shows up in our life. It changes us, transforms us. So, we have that, and, and it shows up by us, the good that it should show up in is that we love God, and then God tells us to love others. So we love God and love others because of our faith. And, and it notice how it's worded, faith working through love, or faith expressing itself through love, love of God, love of others. But listen, until you know the truth, that you are saved only by grace, only as a gift. There's nothing you can do to earn it. Until you know that truth, you have never done a single thing for God. Let me illustrate with a story. I've used this story in years past. Spurgeon, I think, is who came up with this story, but he probably used it more than once too. But anyway, there's a, there's a kingdom, and there's a farmer in the kingdom, and he's he, he's doing farming, and one year he produces this amazing carrot. The carrot's like four feet long. It's huge. It's the most perfect carrot he's ever grown. And he's, he's like, he's just flabbergasted. Wow, look at this carrot. It's amazing. What should I do with this thing? It's the great. I've been farming all my life. It's the greatest carrot I've ever produced. And he decides, you know what? I love my king. I'm going to take it to the king and just give it to him. Just in honor of his greatness. So he shows up at the palace. Sure enough, the king sees him. He comes in carrying this carrot. He lays it down. He says, king, I've farmed all my life. This is the greatest carrot I've ever produced. And hey, I want to give it to you because you're, you're the greatest king that I know. And I just want you to have it. And the king's like, well, thanks. And the farmer turns to walk out. And before he gets to the door, the king says, hey, hey, you know what? I have a field that's kind of near your field I'm going to give that field to you, and I hope you grow other great things with it. The farmer's like, wow. Now, he's doing this. There's some noblemen standing around, and one nobleman's like, whoa. This guy comes in with a carrot. He leaves with a field, a carrot for a field. So he has an idea. So the next day, this guy comes in, and he's leading this majestic stallion into the king. He says, king, I've been breeding horses all my life. This is the greatest, most majestic stallion I've ever bred. He's amazing. And I just, I just feel like I want to give him to you. He's the greatest horse I've ever seen because you're the greatest king. And the king, discerning what's going on, says, thank you. You're dismissed. And the guy's kind of walking out and he's going, man, that didn't go the way I thought that was going to go. And before he gets to the door, the king says to the nobleman, yesterday a farmer came in and gave me a carrot. Today you came in and gave yourself a horse. Here's what I'm saying with that. We're not really serving God for God unless we know 
that we are saved completely by grace. Until we understand that, everything we're doing for God, it's for ourselves so that we'll be accepted, so God will bless us, so God will do something for us. You see the irony? You've never done a single good thing for God unless you understand that your salvation is only by grace, that it's a free gift. You've not ever done anything to love God until you know you're a sinner saved by grace. Until you embrace the gospel, you've never done anything for God in truth. It, next verse here, verse 7 says, here Paul is writing Galatians, he says, you were, you were running well, you were running so good, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Freedom and truth. Who kept you from obeying the truth, he's saying. He's, what he's pointing out here, but what's he... They're about to obey the law, and he's saying this. What's he saying? He's saying, obedience, obeying God for the wrong reasons, is really not obedience. It's not obeying truth. Because you're not following the gospel. You're not following what God's revealed to us. You're not following his truth. That means obeying for the wrong reasons is disobedience. I know that sounds weird, but it kind of shows up a lot of times in our parenting. A lot of parents... We discipline our kids for certain things, and, and, we, and we come up with like four categories. One is we discipline for direct disobedience. When we tell our child to do something, they look us in the eye and say, no, you know, direct disobedience. You got to punish that one, all right? We, we correct our children. We discipline our children for dishonesty because if we can't believe what they say, that breaks our relationship. So direct disobedience, dishonesty. And we also correct our children for disrespect to us as their parent, their authority. But then there's a fourth one. And we, it's a little harder to label. A lot of times we call it discontentment. And what that last one is, is we correct them if they're obedient, but they're really ticked off about it. Like, yeah, I'll take out the trash, but I kick the dog, you know, I, they kick the dog, they're, you know, they're mad, they're glaring at you, you know, slamming the trash around. We correct that because we're instructing our children that not only do they have to obey, they have to obey with the right heart attitude. So those are the four things that we correct for. Well, that kind of reminds us this. If we obey, we have a parenting class coming up in September, by the way, if you're curious, but... If you obey, but your heart's filled with anger or bitterness or resentment, that's not obedience. If the why behind your obedience is wrong, it's as good as disobedience. That's what he's telling us. If you think obeying the law can win God's favor, you're actually rebelling against the truth and you're disobeying even when you obey. That's what he's telling us in truth. Verse nine, 8 and 9 say, This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. And basically saying, hey, this whole law-keeping thing, this teaching that's wrong, it can spread and destroy a church, is what he's saying. Then he continues in verse 10, 11, he says, but he kind of, he throws out a, a confidence in them. He commends them. I have confidence in, in you, in the Lord, that you'll adopt no other view 
but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. Talk about false teacher. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I know that's weird terminology for us. Basically, that's this. The cross of Christ, Jesus dying on the cross to save us, it's offensive. It's offensive because if God had to do something so drastic, that means we are so bad. That means there's nothing good that we can do to fix ourselves. There's nothing good we can do to eliminate one sin. And so we're so bad, we're so flawed, we're so messed up, we're so incapable of doing anything to merit favor from God, doing anything to save ourselves. God, we need outside help, and God, Jesus, came and had to die a terrible death in order to pay for our sins. It's offensive because if that had to happen, it shows us how bad we are, how desperate we are, besides how much God loves us. Verse 12 continues. It says, I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. He's saying, hey, these guys are trying to get you to follow the law, and they're trying to get you guys to do circumcision, take off a little skin. Hey, I wish they'd just castrate themselves. Go the whole way. That doesn't sound very Christian, but that's Paul. He's saying the reason we obey God and do good makes all the difference. But then the last thing, how does this work in our life? Okay. The law, doing the law doesn't help us in any way. It seems like that leads to loose living, but it really shouldn't. Well, why? How, how does it all work out in us? Well, that's the third thing. We're wrapping up with this. Freedom is walking in the Spirit, Paul's going to tell us. This next paragraph. Salvation's through free grace, free gift, not through works. And that salvation through free grace is actually a greater incentive to holy living, to living a life of honesty and love and sacrifice than anything else. Look how Paul says it, beginning in verse 13. He says, for you are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's that golden rule. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. He's telling us that we get the Spirit when we become a believer, when we put our faith, our trust in Jesus. And then he's saying the Spirit is at war with our carnal nature. And so there's always this is a tug of war. Spirit comes in, and all of a sudden there's this battle. And sometimes we yield to the Spirit, and sometimes we don't. We yield to our wrong, if they're wrong, desires. 
He's saying, yield to the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. And we should want to do this basically because of this. I think our I think human, humanity's maybe our greatest need, our greatest desire is that we would be truly loved for who we are deep inside. And that's hard to find because we don't reveal who we are deep inside much because we recognize that some of the things deep inside our heart, they're, they're ugly things. And so even the people closest to us don't always know what those things are. But God does. God knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows your every thought, your every motive. And God still loves you so much that He loves you at great cost and sacrifice. And through Jesus, if you've responded in faith, it's a gift. And if you respond to that gift just through faith, He loves you, but now He's also accepted you and clothed you in righteousness, and nothing can change that. He's saying, then, after you're right with God through nothing that you've done, then you are motivated to want to follow God. And then he says, he, he goes into, the next paragraph is going to be about the fruit of the Spirit. He's saying, and what you should see in your life as a Christian is this fruit of the Spirit should start showing up. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, which kind of wraps them all up. Against such things there is no law, he says later in this chapter. Loving God back makes us want to obey, not to earn salvation, just out of gratitude and joy and certainty that we're God's and nothing can change that. And, and God, through his spirit, will start changing our life and these characteristics will more and more start showing up in our life. That's the life that God wants all of us to lead. That's what he wants, the life he wants us to have as we walk with him. Let's stand together. We'll close in prayer. Father, we thank you for, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your power in creation. We thank you for revealing yourself to us generally and specifically. And mostly we thank you for loving us. Even though for you it was at great cost and sacrifice to love your own creation. God, thank you. And Father, we know in a crowd this size that there are people who have not taken the step to place their trust in your son Jesus and him alone. No other religious things or good things, just Jesus. And Father, we pray that your spirit would tap that person on the heart, help them to begin to see that and want to find out more about you. God, thanks for loving us. We are all in the same boat, sinners, that you love. It's just some of us have responded 
through faith, and some haven't done that through faith alone yet. God, thanks. Help those people see and help us to help them see you more clearly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being here. See you next week as we continue in Galatians.